You're listening to Hebrews Jesus is Better series, preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Before we get into our text in in Hebrews chapter uh, 12 this morning, I just peeked into the gymnasium and good to see the the crowd there as well. And I I saw... um, Jesse and Melissa, and I, I would imagine if they're in there that they're, they just had a new baby boy. Timothy was born the last week or so, I guess, so congratulations to them as well, and we're glad that you're with us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, I'm going to actually start at verse 14. We've been talking through this, verse 14. The writer of Hebrews says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For if you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. I I have thoroughly enjoyed the book of Hebrews and... uh, I love the heart of the writer. You can, you can tell it's a pastoral heart. He's writing to a group of people who are facing persecution, who have been marginalized, and they're discouraged, they're disappointed. Some of them have stalled in their faith, and others are ready to quit. And he's laid this foundation of telling them that Christ is better. Christ is all. You have everything you could ever imagine. And he, he builds that, that, that truth And that argument, and now he's telling them, in light of that, you need to run the race. And not just run the race, run it well, and not just run it well, but finish. And I want you to know something this morning as we get into this text especially. I want to run the race well, and I want to finish well. But as a body, we should want to run the race well, and we collectively, should want to finish well. And so last week we talked about the things we are to pursue or follow. And the writer says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no one can see God. And that word follow literally means to make every effort. And I would just pause for a moment and ask you to ask yourself in your life right now, what is it that you are making every effort And I'm serious. Just think for a moment what it is in your life, in my life, that has consumed us that we are making every effort for. And the writer of Hebrews says we might want to reconfigure that in our hearts and minds. Because as a believer, to run this race and run well and finish well, we must follow peace with all men and pursue holiness without which we will not see God. I was talking with Ian Cameron this week, and we were talking about the text, and usually I go there and he tells me what I should have done better, and, which is fine, it's Ian, you say, yes, you're right. But he said, when it comes to that verse of peace with all men and holiness, it is not only how we run and finish well, but this is God's dictate to his people, and it is the answer for Christian happiness. He said, pursuing peace and holiness equals happiness. And he's right. 
Because as we do these things as believers, we are following in line with Christ. Believer, quit trying to find peace and happiness and fulfillment outside of Christ. It is impossible. It will not happen. It cannot happen. And so we pursue. It's our call to follow Christ. But then he says, there are some things we need to flee. And we flee this falling short of grace, this foothold of bitterness, and fleshly and irreligious behavior. So let's look at verse number 15 this morning. He says, looking carefully, maybe your translation says see to it, but looking carefully. Um, Whether it's looking or seeing, the verb there that you need to know is plural. And it's as if the writer stops and says, and this is probably Southern, you all, you all, He's talking to everyone in the church. And what he's saying now is, as we see these things we're supposed to flee, all of us have a responsibility to one another. A matter of fact, that verb is derived from the word that we use in the Bible, bishop, which is an overseer, which is one who is to guard and protect and care for. Church, I want you to know something this morning. We are in this together. This idea of consumerism, and it's just about me, listen, if you're coming to church and it's about you, you have missed everything. It is not about you. It's about the body of Christ. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, you are your sister's keeper. Yes, we are responsible for one another. And and I know, okay, COVID, For 18 years now, (laughs) or so it seems, has disrupted lots of lives and devastated lots of things, including the church. And we, by God's grace, have had an opportunity to stay, at least in some functioning way, to have people come and worship and do what we can. And I know that there are people who are coming and who are here who came because your churches are closed. And we're thankful. If we could meet that need, we're thankful. And I also realize that some will go back, and for that, we're thankful. If you can not, don't take it the wrong way. <laughs> well, for a couple of you. No, but, but, but we should be good churches in Chatham. But I'm talking this morning now to this body, to this membership, to brothers and sisters here who have covenanted together to live this life, the lapse of one member or more of the community will have its inevitable effect on others. You do make a difference. You being here makes a difference. Your spirit and attitude makes a difference. And so he says to all of us, we are to guard, to guard, Against. And now he gives us three things. Sometimes in the, in the translation you have, it's hard to see, but there are three clauses here. In the King James, it's easy. It's less, less, less. And there are three things we'll look at this morning. Here's the first one. He says, verse 15, look, y'all, look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. And be careful here, because people say, well, you fall short of the grace of God, you're lost. He is talking to save people. He follow these, flee for these. He's talking about 
grace. And, and I think this morning, those of us who know Christ, we understand the idea in salvation of the unmerited grace or unmerited favor, which is grace, the unmerited favor of God that we comprehend for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we come together, for those of us who know Christ, we understand grace and salvation. It is not us. There is nothing we can do to merit this. The fact of the matter is that sinful men and women, which is all of us, the Bible has concluded all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's all of us. I don't care how good of a person you think you are, you cannot, we cannot, merit the favor of God and somehow get a free pass into heaven. We are enemy combatants of God. We have rebelled, all of us, like sheep have gone astray. We've made these decisions. We have said, this God will not rule over me. I will be my own God. I will determine what's right and wrong for my own life. I will create my own reality. I will do as I please. And God in his grace. Aren't you glad this morning that God is not like us? People can be really irritating. And you're thinking, yeah, I'm looking at one right now. In his grace, he doesn't leave us to ourselves. In his grace, he makes a way. And the way was costly. The perfect, spotless lamb of God stepped into my place. And the sin that I commit and have committed and will commit was laid upon him. And the wrath of God, the just, holy wrath of God against all sin was poured on him. He took my place. He took your place. He paid a debt he did not owe. It was my debt that I could not pay. He died, was buried, rose again, and lives forever. And those who come to him, by grace, we are saved. Is this not something this morning that we should just take a split second? It's amazing grace. We should glory and bask and rejoice in this grace. It's a marvelous thing. But I think sometimes we forget as believers that it's just not grace and salvation. Our God is a God of grace. A matter of fact, his divine attitude is benevolence, kindness, and grace to his children. We get screwed up with our ideas of God. They're not biblical. God adores you. You are the apple of his eye. And he longs to bestow this grace, this kindness, this goodness, this benevolence upon our lives. He not only bestows it, he lavishes it. Lavish, right? And maybe you don't understand lavish, but lavish is like lavish. Like it's, in our home, it's like butter. You lavish that on there. That's what God does. In his grace, he lavishes it upon us. I want you to know this morning, as believers in Christ, this grace is important. It tells us we have no need that outstrips this grace. Listen again. Believer, 
we have no need in our life today that outstrips this grace. Not sickness, not pain, not sorrow, not even death. His great grace finds me. It, it always finds me. Listen to what John Blanchard says. He says, for daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. And for overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. We are saved by it. It is lavished upon us. And those of us who know this now and understand this and see it daily in our lives, it then becomes a joy for us to extend that grace outward, first to the body of Christ, and then to all men and women. And when we fail in this grace, the church becomes harsh, unkind, rigid, and self-righteous. And we must guard as a body. Flee this. You all, y'all, flee this. Guard against falling short of grace. And here's, here's what you might be thinking. But Rick, some of those people, uh, they're really difficult. I mean, they're so different. Or those people, talking about the church, that group doesn't deserve that. Do you really want to go there this morning? Is that what you just said out loud? That there's someone that doesn't deserve the grace of God? We were in our growth group last week, and I don't know how the conversation came up, but it did, I don't know how anything comes up. It just, bah, it's there. It's glorious. I love our growth groups. And we start talking about how Jesus called his disciples. And just naming them is really an exercise of encouragement and conviction to us. He calls Matthew. Remember Matthew? What was Matthew's job? A tax collector. A tax collector. Do you know that Matthew as a tax collector was a pawn in the hands of Rome, the government that was crushing literally crushing Matthew's people. Their foot was on their necks. And here is Matthew, who now takes and collects taxes for the Romans against his people. And, and you know, his parents would have disowned him. Like, disowned him. If you were a Jew and you saw him, you would spit upon him. It was so disgusting what he did. And yet, Christ says, Matthew, while he's doing the deed, come and follow me. And Matthew comes. And then he gets some fishermen. You know, fishermen are salty. You know, fishermen. They're just, ah, they're fishermen. They say, yeah, fishermen. And then he calls another guy. His name is Simon. And there's a little moniker with him, the zealot. Do you know what a zealot was in first century Palestine? He hated everything Roman. Like everything Roman. Like he understood we're being crushed. We're being mishandled and mistreated. This is not right. This is not fair. 
And so they would take little daggers and in a crowd would stab Roman soldiers or anyone who lined up with Rome. Like a Matthew. And you look around the table of Christ and, and two people who are the least likely to be gracious to one another are sitting there fellowshipping with Christ because of his grace. You might not believe this, but there are like seminars for churches on how to target groups of people for reals. And years ago, it was like, we want to target in our church uh, young urban professionals. And, and that they make targets for groups of people. And, and we, have, we have done the same thing. We target people. We're called human beings. Human beings. Because Christ gathers broken, fallen, hurting human beings. And by his grace, he gathers them around a table together. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, black and white, educated and uneducated, vaccinated and unvaccinated, liberal, conservative, people's party, whatever, all of them. And they come together. Why? Because of grace. Because of grace. Grace has been bestowed on us, and we should send it out. Now listen to me. Richard Sibb said this. He was brilliant. He was sweet. One of the great Puritans. He said, our discord is the enemy's melody. Listen again. The church. Our discord is the enemy's melody. And when the world looks into the church and sees that there's no grace, no mercy, no kindness, no forgiveness, but there's bitterness and self-righteousness and division. That is a melody for them. Sinclair Ferguson said, when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. And when the world looks into a church that lavishes grace on one another, can I tell you something as a pastor and as the pastors here, we need grace. We need grace. I don't even know if people understand what a nightmare the last year and a half has been. Or the last two weeks have been. Or, see, I'm so bad, I'm going to fall over. I need grace. <laughs> Say, quit moving. You might have some. We need grace. You need grace. The person sitting next to you needs grace. We need grace. And so... You all guard one another. Be gracious and extend it. Number two, guard one another from the foothold of bitterness. Look at the middle of the verse. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Bitterness is a feeling of anger and resentment caused particularly by perceived unfairness in suffering or by adverse circumstances. So basically it means someone hurt you or something bad happened to you. I'm going to go out on a limb this morning and, and just maybe guess that there's no one in this building this morning who's not been hurt by someone or something bad has happened in your life. Right? Let me go out on another limb. That if you've been in church very long, 
you will have someone hurt you or circumstances that happened that made you angry or upset or were unjust. Is that fair? Right? I, I've been there. You folks have been there. I'm like, you folks have been there. We, we, we've been there. And there's not a problem with anger. We should be angry about injustice. And anger should drive us in the right way to deal with injustice. But there's something about old anger that turns to bitterness. Things aren't dealt with. And it becomes dangerous. It becomes dangerous. And so, look what he says about bitterness. He says in verse 15, a root of bitterness. You understand? Farmers, gardeners, roots grow downward. They become embedded and entangled in our life. So bitterness comes in, things aren't dealt with, and days and weeks and years go by, and this root digs down into our heart, and it entangles our heart, and it becomes part of who we even are. It's bitterness. But it doesn't say hidden long. It says springing up. Because bitterness brings fruit. It brings fruit because in our hearts and our minds, we keep on replaying that person and their sin or that situation over and over again. And we hear it and we see it and then it starts to work its way out like you can see it in people. Like if you bring up that name, the eyes roll. Or the conversation starts and says, yeah, but you don't know. Wow, when did that happen? Last year? Five years ago? 20 years ago? 50 years ago? Yes. That root has taken hold and now fruit is coming out. And watch what it says. It causes trouble. It causes hardship and suffering. Listen to me. My brother and sister, I'm not talking about out there. I'm talking about in here. Bitterness in your heart will taint and warp your soul. It will warp you. It will change you in an ugly, terrible, lifeless, death kind of smelling way. And here's the crazy thing. That person or that event, especially that person that's keeping you up, that every time you hear their name, that there's trouble there, usually they have no idea. They're sleeping well. They're not thinking about it. The person being destroyed is you. It's you. And it doesn't stay there, he says, and many be defiled. See, bitterness is not just content with me being soured and me being warped and me. No! Then it just spreads out like a cancer and defiles many. Listen to me this morning. Bitterness will destroy your life. It will destroy the people you love. And it will destroy a church. What's the answer? You want to take a guess what the answer is? We must forgive from the heart. And right away, some of you are like, wait a minute. You don't know. You weren't there. But listen to me. Forgiveness does not mean ignoring a problem or condoning a problem or tolerating abuse or letting someone off the hook. That's not what forgiveness is. As a matter of fact, Matthew 18 gives us a beautiful structure of how to be safe and deal with people. 
But there is a sense that when it comes to bitterness, the only cure is, in my heart, I have to let it go. I have to release my perceived right to retaliate. This is probably the only time Disney has ever gotten this right. <laughs> let it go. Let it go. Cold little girl, let it go. But, but it's become part of us now. And we relish in it. And there's some kind of payoff, some sick payoff. But I want to tell you something. You are being destroyed. We must forgive. And listen to me. Forgiveness doesn't mean that I forget. That's the craziest thing. Just forgive and forget. Really? If you've mastered that, come and see me, because I have not. In Jeremiah 31, 34, God says about the new covenant, their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. God knows everything. But what he does do is he chooses to treat me as if I didn't. That's a conscious decision. We must release, choose not to remember, and start destroying the list in your head. Or literally on paper for some of you. I'm taking notes. You've got volumes written, right? That's always a good idea. That's about the dumbest thing we could do. And we do it. There's some payoff for us. It's time to destroy the list. Destroy it. And, and, and maybe kind of help you, because it's not until we start cherishing grace in our own life that we're able to do this. Do you want to know why we talk about the gospel so much in this church? Because the gospel is everything. It's A to Z or Z. It's, it's all of it. Because what the gospel does in my heart is it reminds me that I have sinned against God more than anyone, humanly speaking, will ever sin against me. Ever. No matter what they've done. I daily, hourly, sin against God more than anyone will ever sin against me. And yet, in his grace, he saved me. And you know what else it does? It reminds me that I'm a sinner. There's no pretending in, Christi in real Christianity. Pretending's a joke it's a lie. It's ungodly. We don't pretend. We are sinful at times. But by God's grace, I come, I repent, I'm forgiven, I'm restored. And something strange will start to happen. When we do this and we start cherishing our own grace, we begin to see the complexity of our own hearts. Our hearts, they're wicked. Our hearts are evil. And if anyone could peer into them right now, they would hate you. And you'd hate me. Our hearts hold some nasty stuff in there. And we start to understand that this is me, and this is the people who have hurt me. It starts changing our perspective. We begin to see humanity. Can I tell you something? When you are looking at people, you and I are looking at living souls. Like living souls. They were created in the image of God. And if you do this long enough, believe it or not, there comes a time in our life when we can stop with the hatred and literally start offering compassion because we feel sorry for that situation. It's glorious. And some of us today need to repent and let it go and burn the list and cherish the grace that we have. Guard your heart, brother and sister. Don't let that bitterness take root. And don't encourage people who are bitter to keep on going. Oh, that's terrible. Tell me more. You deserve. You it doesn't help anybody. And then finally this morning, here's the third thing to flee. 
Verse number 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So, the next thing that we are to flee is fleshly and irreligious behavior. He gives the example of Esau, um, and it would be wise if you want to take some time, look at Genesis 25, but he calls Esau a fornicator. And so, the question is, is he talking physically, a fornicator? He's immoral, or is he talking spiritually? Um, well, the Old Testament talks about Esau having two wives from Canaanite women, and so it doesn't really clarify it, but in rabbinical teaching, they paint Esau as a dog, like really, like a flesh-fest, immoral fornicator. And that's Christianity 101, right? God tells us to be pure in our bodies, because that's what he's called us to do. So it could be sexual fornication, or it could be spiritual. You read the Old Testament, and oftentimes you see God's covenant people who entered into a covenant with God. I will, I will, I will. They don't, they don't, they don't. And they follow false gods and serve them, and God says, you guys are whoremongers. You, you have committed spiritual fornication against me. You find that in Exodus 34 and Hosea chapter 2. I mean, you find it all over, but those are good texts. So what is it? I don't know, but they're both bad. They're both bad. So he says... This is Esau, a fornicator, sexually immoral. And then he says he's profane, which means he is unholy, he is godless. And then he tells the story about the birthright. And you know the story. If you don't, you should check it out again in Genesis. The birthright, uh, Esau, the firstborn, is hungry, starving, hunting all day. Jacob's at home with his mom. He makes a bowl of delicious chili. Esau comes in and says, I'm dying. I'm famished. I'm starving. Give me that chili. And Jacob says, I'll give you the bowl if you sell me your birthright. What do I need the birthright? I'm dying right now. So he sells it. And for you, it's like, what, a birth, it's, what, what in the world? Well, in, in Esau's day, a birthright was a big deal. It was, it was from Abraham to Isaac, right? This promise that was made. The firstborn became then like the family priest. It was a big deal, his spiritual leadership. Not only that, he got a double portion of his father's inheritance. And through Abraham, this birthright put you in line for the Messiah that would come, the one who by, by him all the nations of the world would be blessed. It's a big deal. And Esau says, it doesn't matter right now. Um, he was more interested in things that can be seen instead of that which could not. So it's a problem. Now let me just tackle quickly, and we're almost done. Stay with me. Verse 17, because this is a problem a verse for a lot of people. It says, he wanted to inherit a blessing. He was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And some people say, there you go. There comes a point when you repent and God says, I'm done with you. Uh, the problem with that is that's not what the verse is talking about. It's always a good idea if you find something from the Old Testament to go back and see what's happening. In the Old Testament, Esau wasn't coming to God saying, God, save me. I'm a wretched sinner. I'm lost. He went to his father because he lost the inheritance, and now it meant a big deal to him. Like, oh my goodness, I lost a double portion. So he goes, and in the story, you know what he's saying? Dad, please, 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 give me a blessing. The repentance, repentance means a change of mind. He was longing for Isaac to change his mind and give him a blessing. And Isaac says, sorry, no go. This has nothing to do with salvation. It's about a kid who made a bad decision. 
and now there are consequences. He saw it with tears because he had nothing now. And so don't, don't go that route because that's not a verse for it. So here are the points together. Number one, here is Esau who, for him, immediate gratification of appetite was what it was about. I want it, I want it now. And he had no value on spiritual realities. There's no room for God. None. God was crowded out. Um, we would call this today, I think, worldliness. To gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. God has no room in our life anymore. We've come to a place where we are desiring stuff too much and desiring too much stuff. And this is a danger in the church. We, through our worldliness and materialism, are crowding out God. God. Listen to what Joel Beek says about the goal of worldly people is to move forward rather than upward, to live horizontally rather than vertically. They seek after outward prosperity rather than holiness. They burst with selfish desires rather than with heart, heartfelt supplications. If they do not deny God, they ignore and forget him, or else they use him only for their selfish ends. Worldliness is human nature without God. And in the church, this is so subtle, because things are shiny and things are nice, and I want more, and I want bigger, and I want better, and they have this, and so I have to have this as well. And what's happening in our spiritual lives is we are crowding out God. We have this living affection to dying things, as Owen says. And we're so wrapped up in what is passing. It's all passing. And the things of this world are crowding out God. We have become like Esau. Our greatest challenge today for the church is not persecution from the world. It is not. Listen to me. Our greatest challenge is not persecution from the world. It's seduction by the world. That the church no longer looks like the church. It looks like the world. And our hearts are the problem. Our problem. Esau had no room for God. He wanted what's here, what's now, what I, what I want. I want it now. No room for God. We must intentionally pursue him. We do not drift into holiness ever, ever. And believer, for some of us, is like, stop. Just stop. To what end? More, bigger, better. We are busier today in our lives. We don't have time for God. None. The problem is, we're going to see him. I was in a prayer meeting on Tuesday, our online, which you should do. If you haven't had a chance to go online and pray with our people, it's a glorious time. But Brother Jeff uh, Marling uh, just read this prayer from the Valley of Vision. It's the Puritan prayer book. If you don't have it, you should get it. It's, it's fantastic. And, and we were talking about, so things of the world lose their luster. Here's a prayer called the deeps. And I, and I know it's a little bit longer. I'm stopping after this, so hang on. We're almost there. I'm stopping, I promise, after this. But I want you to listen to what the Puritans prayed. Okay? Lord Jesus... I want you to hear what the Puritans are praying so I can see it. Lord Jesus, give me a deeper repentance, a horror of sin, a dread of its approach. Help me chastely to flee it and jealously to resolve that my heart shall be thine alone. Give me deeper trust 
that I may lose myself to find myself in thee, the ground of my rest, the spring of my being. Give me deeper knowledge of thyself as Savior, Master, Lord, King. Give me deeper power in private prayer, more sweetness in thy word, more steadfast grip on its truth. Give me deeper holiness in speech, thought, action, and let me not seek moral virtue apart from thee. Plow deep in me, great Lord, heavenly husbandman, that my being may be tilled field, the roots of grace spreading far and wide, until thou alone art seen in me, thy beauty golden like summer harvest, thy fruitfulness as autumn plenty. I have no master but thee, no law but their will, no delight but thyself, no wealth but what thou givest, no good but what thou blessest, no peace but that thou bestowest. I am nothing but thou makest me. I have nothing that I receive not from thee. I can be nothing but that grace adorns me. Now here it is, listen. Quarry me deep. My heart, quarry it deep, dear Lord. And then fill me to overflowing with living water. My brother and sister this morning, we are too easily satisfied. And the things of God, this everlasting water and joy and life are ours. And we must guard one another. We must, against falling short of God's grace, of a foothold of bitterness, and a fleshly and irreligious behavior, because there's so much more. Run the race. And run it well. And don't just worry about yourself. It's for all of us. Every one of us. And you and I have spheres of influence. If you're a husband, you have work to do. If you're a mom, you have work to do. If you're single, you have work to do. If you're young, you have work to do. If you're old, you have work to do. If you're part of this body, look around. There is plenty of work to do. And so run, run well, and may we all finish well together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And God, I, I can't imagine this morning that there's not something in here for every one of us. As we think about our lives, the grace that we show, the bitterness we guard in our hearts and pretend we don't have, or the fleshly desires that have crowded you out. Oh God, deal with us first. And, and the beam in our own eyes so that we can help and bless one another. Lord, have your way and will in the service. As we sing, help us to be thoughtful and reflective. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you join me in standing? This is probably one of our favorite songs. Travis, make sure that microphone is by your face. I want to hear your voice. All right? I mean it, or I'll hold it for you. And you don't want that to happen. But we'll sing together, Behold Our God. And just think about what we have in Christ. May we be resolved to follow him fully.